Everyone's been caught uh, talking to themselves, haven't they? I'm, I'm quite nervous of it because quite often I walk around this place and talk to myself. I'm always nervous as I walk towards the toilet that I might be, get caught talking to myself one day. The first sign of madness is talking to yourself. And the second sign of madness is answering yourself. According to the passage this morning, Paul must be stark raving mad. He's using a series of questions and answers to continue his presentation of the gospel, to, to outline the fact that we are, are sinners, that we are people that need a saviour. Why the dialogue? Why the questions and answers you might be asking? Is it a, a recount of a previous conversation that Paul's had with someone objecting to his teaching? Or is it just Paul raising questions so that his teaching becomes clearer and his argument becomes clearer? Or is it Paul the Jew, the pre-converted Paul, speaking and arguing with the Christian Paul? I don't know. But it's a characteristic mark of his style. And particularly in chapter 3 this morning. He, he asks obvious questions and then he proceeds to answer them. So I thought we might have a question and answer session this morning. I need four volunteers. No, I'm just kidding. I like to make you squirm in your seats. What Paul does is, is he goes through and ask question after question after question, and he answers them. And there's six questions in the passage this morning, between verses 1 and 9. The first of the question there this morning is in verse 1. He asks, What advantage has the Jew, or what value is, is of circumcision? What is the value of circumcision? We're going to work our way through these six questions, but, but five in total. Verse 9 is also similar to verse 1. What then? Are we Jews any better off? If, if you're thinking this morning, what is a Jew and what is a Gentile? And just a point of clarification. A, a Jew is a, a person from the nation of Israel, called out of Egypt, saved out of Egypt in Exodus, and they are a descendant of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of Joseph, and a Gentile is, is anyone else in the world. And particularly in our letter this morning, the Greek and Roman world is what, what Paul is speaking of. And something that his readers may have asked, if the Gentiles can now be saved, then what was the benefit of being a Jew? What was the benefit of having the history that we have, of having all the things that we have? And he says, much in every way, in verse 2. To, to begin with, the Jews were, were entrusted with the oracles of God. I love the way that he starts, to begin with, as if he's going to list out a long list of things that are benefits to being a Jew, and then he just lists one. He says, the best reason for being a Jew, out of many is that the Jews have been entrusted with the very oracles of God. 
the very words of God through the prophets and law and the Psalms. And he says there's a great benefit to being a Jew. There's a great value to it. You've been entrusted with the very words of God of of how to approach him, how to worship him, how to please him, of who he is. What a what a awesome benefit. And the oracles of God not only show who God is and, and what he has done for the Jewish nation, but but also they show that that God is a God of grace, of mercy, but also judgment. Judgment upon rebellion for unfaithfulness. And you'll notice that Paul uses the words oracles or words of God rather than promises of God. Why does he do this? There was a tendency within the Jewish nation to just focus on the promises of God. Just to focus on the blessings of being a Jewish person. To be focused on on having the promises of God. All the while ignoring the the curses for judgment, for unfaithfulness enclosed within the scriptures. We also, as Christians, have this benefit too. We not only have the oracles of God contained in the Old Testament from the law and the prophets and the Psalms, but better than that, we have the, the revelation of God in the flesh, in the New Testament, Jesus. Let's not forget how great a benefit that is. Let's not have a tendency to focus just on the promises of God in, in the Old Testament or the New Testament while ignoring the curses and judgment that come from unfaithfulness. Let's move on. Question two, Paul asks, What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Let's not forget to read those words in their fullness. Paul asks this hypothetical question. If God's people were unfaithful, does that nullify or cancel out God's faithfulness? What a ridiculous question. By no means, he says in verse 4. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written. And he quotes Psalm 51, verse 4, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Here's the first of our by no means statements that Paul uses. He says that that God would still be true and good and faithful even if everyone else in the world were a were unfaithful, were liars. God's truth does not stand upon whether whether or not we are faithful. God's truth remains faithful and true regardless of whether people follow him or not. He would still judge the entire world if, if everyone else were a liar. Don't forget, he's nearly done that once before in Genesis with the account of the flood, except for eight people he judged the entire world. And God is and would still be 
just and righteous and good and merciful and faithful even if he did judge the world in this way again. He has promised not to do it, by the way. But here Paul is speaking about covenant faithfulness versus the the faithfulness of God in our next question. Question three. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? I speak in a human way. Paul's, again, hypothetical question here is like a man saying to my wife, if through my inaction of buying you flowers and chocolates and being romantic, it makes you look like a better wife, then why are you still mad at me? It's actually a little bit deeper than that. It's actually more like a husband saying to his wife, if my unfaithfulness and my infidelity serves to show how forgiving of a wife you are, why are you still mad at me? That question would not fly with my wife and I I don't recommend trying it with your wife either. It wouldn't fly. Why do we think that God would would answer such a question? It gives us an indication of how lightly we think of the of our own sin and, and how casual we take our relationships with God. And again Paul says, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? If God is not righteous in his dealings with all people, then he's not righteous at all. And so in keeping with the question from verse 3 where Paul speaks of this faithfulness of the Jewish nation as opposed to the faithfulness of God, where Paul is speaking of the covenant faithfulness, but here Paul is speaking about the faithfulness of God to himself. It's not God in violation of his covenant agreement with Israel if he inflicts wrath upon his people or anyone else in that for that matter. But Paul here is speaking about God's faithfulness to his own character, to his own goodness, to his own righteousness. And a way that this question is asked today is how can... How can God be a loving God? How can he be just and if he loves everyone and yet he sends some people to hell? How can that be a righteous God? God would not be a just judge and a righteous God if he enabled some people to just get away with their sin. Because their sin reveals his righteousness. That's, that's us determining who God should be. I don't want to serve a God like that. God is just and righteous and good and he cannot be in the presence of sinners and have the presence of sin in, him, in his presence. And yet here we have this conundrum where God the just 
and the righteous. Makes a way for sinners to have their penalty for the sins paid for. Where God the just sent his only son to die on the cross in order that sinners may be able to be brought into his presence. That through faith in Jesus and Jesus alone that we have received the righteousness of Jesus that allows us to come before a holy and righteous God. Does that blow your mind? Let's keep moving through. Question four. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And this question asks much the same as the one before it elaborates the objection of how is it fair for God to judge me if my sin brings him glory? And again, as, as Paul continues to move along, the objector, objector in the next verse states that this view of, of God's grace, this gospel of Paul's, actually encourages sin. Question 5. And why not do evil that good may come, as people, some people slanderously charge us with saying? Paul replies about how preposterous this stupid statement is. Their condemnation is just. But these verse, verses actually explain verse 6 a little bit more. If God were not able to judge the world then anyone could come to him with the excuse of, but my sin amplified your goodness. Why am I still being condemned? I was your little helper. I, my sin made you look good, God. And I continued to sin so that you would continue to look good. Do you see how stupid and preposterous this is? If verse 5 were the case that God was not able to judge his, his nation that he chose because of their unfaithfulness, just on the statement that he is a good God, and it would be easy enough for all the Gentiles to come to him and say, well, we weren't even chosen people. How can you still judge us? I didn't even know about your righteousness and about your law and... How can you still judge me? If we think in this way, it, it shows that we have a light view of sin and a light view of God's holiness and righteousness. And the way that Paul dismisses this objection again is showing how blasphemous and ridiculous it is. Let God be God and we are who we are. In Hebrews 10.26 we see that, that the writer to the Hebrews says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Paul has just spent the last 52 verses explaining to us how rotten 
and incapable of our own salvation we are. And that no one can stand before God without an excuse. Or with any excuse. Not any Jewish person. Not any Gentile person. Not any short person or fat person or tall person or skinny person or or dark-coloured skin person or light-coloured skin person. It doesn't matter who you are. No one can stand before God with any excuse for their sin. Because sin is the great or the not great equaliser. It causes all of us to fall short of God's glory. And from verses 10 to 18, Paul uses various parts of the Old Testament scriptures to to show us how, how creative we are when we sin. He uses various parts of the, the body, the lips, the mouth, the throat, the tongue, and the feet and the eyes to show that sin is not just a, a little bag of, of bad deeds that we carry around with us. That we don't just sin in one way or an, another, but we sin from inside of us. That every part of our bodies is sinful and corruptful, corrupt. It's in our very nature to be self-seeking, to be disobedient, to not follow God's laws, to not follow what God desires of us. And this disqualifies us from, from enjoying God's righteousness and goodness and his peace. And to debunk the myths that the Jewish people had about the, this presumption of salvation that they had, he quotes from the Old Testament scriptures and he shows that no one can presume upon God because all are sinful. And in verses 19 and 20, Paul draws the line and he says it's the line of righteousness. No one can cross onto God's side of their own doing. No one can claim to be righteous and good. All of humanity is at a loss. No one can stand before God. Not even through works of the law that the Jewish people had can anyone be made justified or righteous. Can anyone have a relationship with God through works of the law? No, they cannot. Look at verse 20 with me. For by works of the law no human being or flesh will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul initially announces that he has good news. The gospel... The announcement of good news in chapter 1. But for the last 63 verses, he's given us nothing but bad news. We're ruined. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves. No one can stand before God with any excuse or reasoning or, or anything. Even the Jews who are God's special chosen treasure cannot stand before him 
and proclaim, I have done this. I have followed your law completely. In fact, the Jews are in a worse place because some people are ignorant of their sin, but but the Jews weren't. Through the knowledge of the law brings about the knowledge of sin. And these verses proclaim the righteous judgment of God. That God is still right and just and good when he judges the human race. No one can stand before him. In order for there to be good news, there has to be bad news. We have to understand what the bad news is. And the bad news is, folks, that we are sinful people. That we are so in need of a saviour that nothing compares. That is, that is the biggest and greatest need for all of our lives. And so for us to understand that we have been saved, we must know what we have been saved from. We've been saved from this very judgment of God that Paul is speaking about. There's a number of different types of sermons. Some sermons make you walk away thinking, how good is God? I mean, I'm just awed by how good is God. Some other sermons make you walk away and and think, how beautiful is the sacrifice of Jesus? And as much as it pains me to to leave you with this this morning, some sermons leave you with a a thought of, how sinful am I? How, how much of a need of a saviour am I? Today's message is the last kind, folks. Everything within me tells, tells me. I can hear my Bible college preaching lecturer say, what about Jesus? You can't leave people there. What about Jesus? Have a look at verses 10 to 18. Jesus is righteous. Jesus understands. Jesus seeks for God. Jesus did not turn aside. Jesus was not worthless. Jesus did do good. Jesus' throat was not an open grave and he did not use his tongues to deceive. And yet... But yet he spoke truth. The venom of asps was not under his lips. The words of truth and life. Jesus' mouth was full of promises and kindness and goodness. Jesus' feet, he did not use his feet to shed blood. But yet his feet did shed blood. Jesus' paths are not ruin and misery, but the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way of peace, 
And Jesus did fear God with his eyes and his whole body. He was the only one to walk this earth and not fit the description of verses 10 to 18. How good is that? That Jesus has made a way for us, the ones who are unrighteous, the ones who cannot stand before God. He has made a way for us to know God, to seek him. So that we may be able to stand before God on the day of judgment and go, God, I am a sinner. But Jesus paid the penalty for my sins. Let's pray. Lord, we are sinners. We are sinners in in dire need of your grace. We cannot stand before you and proclaim the things that we have done just like the Pharisees would and say, but didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we preach in your name? We cannot stand before you and, and give any excuse, Lord. Lord, I pray that, that our only excuse, that there are, our only defence would be Jesus Christ. That it would be in his name alone that we find forgiveness of sins and peace with God. Lord, I ask that you would impress on our hearts our need for a saviour this morning, that we would be acknowledging Jesus Christ as our Lord and saviour, not just today but into the weeks to come. Lord, that we would be awed at how good and how righteous you are and, and to be following you, to be obeying your commands out of a, a sense of gratitude and, and out of a sense of Jesus is my king and therefore I want to, I desire to follow him. Lord, I pray that you would impress on our hearts other people's need for a saviour as well. We wouldn't go from here just acknowledging you as our Lord and saviour but proclaiming that other people can have you as their Lord and saviour as well. Lord, forgive us of the times where we think lightly of our relationship with you and, and think lightly of your righteousness and take for granted the fact that we are sinners saved by grace and grace alone. Pray that that would just really encourage us this morning and challenge us in our walk with you. I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.